Hello and welcome to episode five of Common Room Philosophy. Today I'm recording with Barney Walker. Barney Walker is a teaching fellow at the University of Warwick. He's taught on the history of philosophy, philosophy of mind and more. His research interests lie in epistemology and philosophy of mind. So that's what we'll be discussing on the podcast today. So Barney, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) No problem. It's good to have you. For our first question, what first got you interested in philosophy? When I was about 15 years old, I read a book called Confessions of a Philosopher by Brian McGee, which my sister gave to me as a, as a birthday present. She's about 10 years older than me. And she actually did the philosophy and literature degree at Warwick. So my sister was kind of the gateway drug, as it were, for philosophy for me. So she gave me this book and I read it and was just, you know, absolutely loved the book. I mean, obviously there was a lot in it I didn't really understand, but I came away feeling like Brian McGee was right about everything and I needed to be an academic in philosophy. I mean, I did REA level and I was lucky to have a teacher who uh, pushed certain books my way. So I remember reading Practical Ethics by Peter Singer when I was a sick former. I think I became vegetarian for around a year off the back of reading that book. And then I split up with my first girlfriend and had a bacon sandwich and never looked back since. Um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that was that was how I, how I got interested in it. Um, I mean, Brian McGee, I don't know if people know, but um, he produced loads of radio shows, TV shows about philosophy that you can kind of get all of them on YouTube now. Mm-hmm. And they're absolutely brilliant fantastic resource you can learn so much from them he interviews people like bernard williams martha nussbaum loads of really prominent contemporary philosophers so you can learn a lot from him so yeah that was that that was kind of it really i I read that book and i kind of decided i mean kind of ridiculously decided that i wanted to be a philosopher off the basis of reading that book wow (laughs) and that's just that's remained the whole time or have there been lapses in that there there have there have been some lapses i mean i think it's quite common to I think maybe for students in general to have quite an idealistic conception of what being a philosopher is like. Sure. Um, And as you sort of progress through the profession, you increasingly encounter professional elements that that you're not really so keen on. But my my basic passion for the subject is is absolutely still there, 100%. Um, Sometimes the difficulties of pursuing it professionally have daunted me and I've thought about maybe doing other things. But up to now, I've not really found anything else that I think would be a good option for me to, to pursue professionally so I've just sort of stuck at it really I mean we'll see what happens but sure, at the moment sure. I'm a philosopher <laughs> how have your philosophical interests changed over time since reading that book I mean probably the main thing which is a, a bit depressing to say and it's changed again latterly probably the main thing is that they narrowed quite a lot so as I did my undergraduate degree my PhD you know you, you just become very specialized in certain bits of philosophy you know, it's sort of, I mean, it's almost ridiculous how narrow I am. I can I can talk a bit about epistemology. I mean, even philosophy of mind, I, I know bits, but there are huge areas of philosophy of mind I know very little about. So, so I certainly narrowed a lot through my studies. I mean, I think that's a fairly common phenomenon. And then since I've got my PhD, I've become much more interested again in broadening out what I know about. And I've become much more interested in the history of philosophy, particularly, actually. Uh, and I really think I missed a bit of a trick there in not being more serious about history of philosophy earlier. Do you feel like that kind of specialisation is something that a good philosopher always has? Or what do you, what do you think makes a good philosopher? So, so an essay I really like in philosophy is Bernard Williams' essay, Philosophy as a Humanistic Discipline. And he makes some rather 
uh, I think exactly right remarks about the, the the discipline of doing a PhD in philosophy. So he's, his idea is basically doing a PhD is, I mean, in one way, it's very good intellectual training because basically it teaches you to write as though your audience is like the most sympathetic, pedantic, annoying person ever who will just pick you up on anything that it is remotely objectionable if they can if they can read you in an uncharitable way that sort of misses the point they will do that so you kind of learn to write in this as Williams puts it in this way that you kind of attempt to achieve complete mind control of your reader and so I think I think that's a very good thing actually as, as a form of training for people I mean, I'm almost conscious now that it seems a bit ridiculous because I only completed my PhD four or five years ago. So for me to be saying these things already perhaps sounds a bit pompous, but already I have a sense of, oh, that's so boring, actually. Like it was a very, it was clearly a crucial stage for me to go through in terms of my philosophical development. And I think if you haven't subjected yourself to the rigours of that, your work will suffer because there will be a certain amount of sloppiness and irrelevance in it. But I think having that ability to engage with that kind of unsympathetic reader is something that actually improves you greatly as a, as a thinker. But I think the danger is that you come away thinking that that's the be-all and end-all, and, it, and it, it really isn't. And philosophy would be a much poorer subject if that was all we ever did. So, so I do think that ability to express yourself very clearly, having close attention to detail, formulating arguments in very precise ways, those are all important skills. And, and I think one of the great things about training to be a philosopher is you get those. But actually, I, the kind of the, the more I learn about philosophy, the, 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 the more I see the importance of other skills, like just creativity, having good ideas. Something I'm increasingly aware of as being important is having a, a strong sense of what the bigger picture is. Being able to grasp those details, as I was talking about before, but equally being able to step back and see, well, hang on, what's the broader significance of all this? Why am I doing this? Why is this interesting? So yes, I suppose those are the things that I think make, makes, a, makes, a, makes an okay philosopher, if you can yeah, do those things to some extent. I mean, obviously greatness is another, another matter, I guess, but yeah. Yeah, because that, that's the next question. Do you think there are such people as great philosophers? So people who, that it's accurate or useful to treat them as particularly worthy of study and respect. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, I think I think it is. I mean, and there's there's so many of them, and it's impossible for for any of us to study all of them in the detail that they that they deserve. But if you ask me to give a list, I'm afraid I would just give you the usual suspects. I, I mean, I was I was kind of interested by, by, by this question. So sorry, I maybe maybe I'll turn it around. But I was interested to know what what was the thought. Was there a particular thought behind the question? Because, I mean, I find it quite hard to yeah. see how you couldn't think that. I suppose sometimes I just wonder if the idea of treating certain philosophers as particularly special in some way can perhaps breed, like, potentially bad norms in philosophy sometimes, in that everybody thinks of philosophy as quite an individual pursuit because we focus on individuals, whereas in reality they're very much situated within traditions and debates and conversations mm -hmm. so i suppose i was i was trying to get at that sort of question of um what is the maybe what is the ethics of calling certain people great philosophers i mean well let's let's be let's be clear so i mean when you call someone a great philosopher you certainly don't mean to imply that everything they say is true mm, <laughs> or anything yeah, like definitely. that or that or that one should just defer to what they say mm. so so it's about really having made some kind of major contribution to the subject one introduces something new that had not been that that's not present in one's in one's predecessors so i mean i think 
obviously when you go back to the ancient Greeks, I mean they 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 invented Western philosophy. So clearly they have a they yeah. stand as great philosophers in the tradition. A period I'm especially interested in is the early modern period. I think the figures there count as great philosophers primarily because they're they're reacting to the rejection of the Aristotelian worldview and its replacement by the modern scientific worldview. And that was just an enormous change in the intellectual landscape of people, at least in Europe. It created all kinds of fascinating philosophical issues that that were pursued by those thinkers as as they attempted to articulate basically an entirely new metaphysics and epistemology and philosophy of science. And it's just it's just absolutely fascinating. So, I mean, one so you kind of talked about context. I mean, one thing that's interesting about being a great philosopher I think is that clearly at that time there's a particular reason why there are so many great philosophers in that time and I think it's because of the historical context in which they were operating and the changes in ideas that were occurring then and of course in if you look at political philosophy people like Hobbes the changes in society I mean what's basically happening is the creation of the modern world as and the ways of thinking that we're that that we're familiar with now so it's entirely appropriate I think to spend a good a lot of time thinking about those people um, because they in many ways they're responsible for, for our modern conception of things so that that's sort of I think when I said before I'm getting more interested in the history of philosophy it's increasingly realizing that you know the ways that I think and see things are not just natural given ways they're ways that are shaped by a tradition and understanding that tradition I think is really important for being a good philosopher but also you said about understanding the context and I think if you want to go back and understand Locke or Descartes or any of these thinkers the point of calling them great philosophers is not just all you need to read is these guys and ignore the rest (laughs) right there's a lot as you say, there's lots of other things going on, they're responding to things, and, and having a sense of that context is actually completely essential for understanding what they're saying. So there's a kind of, um, one of the criticisms that's often made of analytical philosophy, or so-called analytical philosophy, at least around the middle of the 20th century, is that there was a tendency to go back and read great figures in the history of philosophy as though their works were just articles that had just been printed in mind. So just completely right. ignore any of the. I can't. Someone. I can't remember who said that, but someone quipped that that's kind of the approach people took. That, then, when you read the works like that, they they don't really seem very good quite often, and you think, well, why are they saying this? And this argument's rubbish. And you, you, divorced from their context, you just actually completely miss. I think what's most interesting about them, or there's a at least there's a serious danger of you missing what's most interesting about them. So there was a uh, there was a bonus question from Twitter that was quite related to this, since. They said Wittgenstein, but I think that must be their particular interest. But who is the modern day yeah. philosopher who is most likely to be talked about in 100 years? Yeah, I mean, Wittgenstein's an interesting one there, isn't he? But mm. um, I've not come across anyone who people have such divergent reactions towards. Some people think he's a genius. Some people think he's kind of rubbish. It's just right. crazy. And that's professional philosophers. Some people just have no interest in him at all. But um, anyway, I mean, I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm really that good a person to answer this question. I mean, it's the obvious people really I think so who, who do I think is obvious okay so so I, I, I know almost nothing about him but I'm sure John Rawls will be talked about in 100 years right because political philosophy basically just conce- seems to consist in large part of talking about rules yeah. about nowadays <laughs> in epistemology I guess maybe I should talk more about my so I mean I, I think the I mean the best book in epistemology in the last 20 or 30 years is Tim Williamson's book Knowledge and Its Limits and I I, I suspect Williamson will still be talked about in a hundred years. Bernard Williams, I'm sure, will be talked about. I mean, he's he's just 
brilliant philosopher. I suppose maybe the the relevant question would be, who would you like to be talked about in 100 years? Who do you think should be? Who do I think should be? So I think that, yeah, I think I just go back to, to Bernard Williams, really. I mean, there's there's so many, right? I mean, all I can do is just pick one person who, let's just pick one. And, and also, I think Williams, I think Williamson should be, actually, I mean, for quite different reasons, really. I mean, I think, I think Williamson should be talked about because a great deal of what he says about knowledge is true. And so I kind of just don't want it to be forgotten. <laughs> Although he, right. he wasn't the first person to say it, but... Knowledge and its limits is just a very um, clear statement of a lot of things which I think are importantly true in epistemology. Maybe we'll talk more about knowledge first epistemology yeah. later. Bernard Williams, I think, just for the range and creativity and ex- just intellectual excitement of reading his work and engaging with it. So in, in the stuff I've done on epistemology, I'm actually generally quite critical of things that Williams says. But nevertheless, it's through engaging with things that he has said about in epistemology that I've learned a great deal. But um, obviously, unlike Williamson, I mean, Bernard Williams, his writings range right the way across the subject of philosophy. So there's that breadth as well with him and a, and a strong sense of the bigger picture that you get with Williams. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that, that I've done a, a few modules with you and I've noticed Bernard Williams cropping up in like every one of them yeah. at some point. Yeah, no, that, I mean, <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, what do you think it was a fair decision to put? Definitely. I just think his papers, I just think his papers are so brilliant. No, definitely. I think they've been really interesting. Um, I mean, just, just this year when I was teaching um, Barclay's master argument in history of modern philosophy, which I think you, you took with me, right? And, and, and the master argument just for people who don't know. So, right. So Barclay challenges the materialist who conceive of the existence of a, material object unconceived or unthought of and so the materialist says well there's nothing easier I can imagine a tree in a quad uh, with no one about to perceive it and there, there I've done it I've conceived of something existing unperceived I've, con- I've conceived of a tree existing un- unperceived and then Barclay says well aha aren't, aren't you thinking of it just in the act of conceiving of mm-hmm. it all you've done is tricked yourself by in effect imagining it without anyone else around to see it or otherwise perceive it or think of it. Um, so it's a. I, I mean, it, it. It's obviously not a good argument, <laughs> but there's. But there's yeah. kind of there's something in it. There's definitely something. And um and, and, and there's some things to say about it. Um, Bernard Williams's paper, Imagination in the Self, just turned out to be the the most brilliant thing to use for teaching mm. that that argument. I think. And um, again, so that picks up again. Although although in that paper he's engaging with contemporary issues about the nature of the imagination and and things. And that paper's had a huge amount of influence in philosophy of mind. Nevertheless, it goes back to history of philosophy for its starting point. We'll move on to a second section about epistemology now. So I realised after recording this episode that we talk a lot about the notions of knowledge and true belief in this upcoming section without really explaining what they are or what the difference between them is. So we recorded this extra question to make a bit more sense of that for those who haven't studied this subject before. Would it be possible for you to describe a little bit more what the difference between knowledge and true belief is? Yeah, sure. So the key point for the purposes of understanding the Mino problem um, is that uh, it appears to be possible to have a true belief about something without knowing, without knowing it. So let me let me give you an example to illustrate that point. So here's a, here's a simple example where you have a true belief without having knowledge. So suppose that I see Smith, who works in my office, and I see Smith each day arrive at, off, at, at arrive at the office driving a Ford, and I hear him talking about his Ford. So I believe that Smith owns a Ford. And on that basis, I believe that someone in my office owns a Ford. Now, 
it is true that someone in my office owns a Ford because Mary, let's say, owns a Ford who also works in my office. But I don't know anything about Mary's car. I've never seen her using it or anything. And actually, Smith doesn't own a Ford. He's just borrowing the car from a friend. Perhaps this has broken down. Maybe it's being loaned from a garage or something. But he doesn't actually own a Ford motor car. So I believe that someone in my office owns a Ford. And my belief is true because Mary, who works in my office, owns a Ford. But it's often suggested, and I think this is right, I don't actually know in these circumstances that someone in my office owns a Ford because my basis for believing that is uh, is that Smith owns a Ford, but that's false. So in this case, I have a, a true belief that someone in my office owns a Ford, but the thought is because that belief is true just by coincidence or by luck, it's not knowledge. Thanks. Now back to the show. So I would like to ask, what is it that keeps you interested in epistemology so so what yeah or what issues in epistemology do i find interesting hmm. so I, I suppose i'm i mean i need to start talking about my phd really i think to answer yeah. this question so i i wrote my phd on questions about that the value of knowledge uh, the most famous problem about the value of knowledge is the mino problem uh, so in plato's dialogue the mino socrates observes that knowledge and true belief are not the same thing because you can have a true belief about something without knowing about it. And he also points out that we seem to value knowledge more highly than true belief. But he points out that it seems that for practical purposes, true belief is just as good as knowledge. So somebody, in his example, somebody who has a true belief or a right opinion about the way to Larissa will be just as successful in getting there as somebody who knows the way. And so the question, the puzzle becomes, why, why then do we value knowledge more highly than true belief given that it seems at least in respect of their practical effects they are identical i mean i think that is kind of an interesting thing to think about i I can't say it was one of the puzzles about philosophy that that most grabbed me ever Mm. but what sort of led into my phd was seeing that philosophical discussions of that problem and there have actually been a lot of discussions of that problem in the last 20 or 30 years often seem highly confused in various ways and so it I suppose I kind of got a bit frustrated about the confusions contained in those discussions and we'll, we'll talk more about mm-hmm. well, what, what I regard as confusions or unclarities in those discussions so we can talk more about that so then I kind of just ended up thinking well I kind of want to work this out and what's going on and where, where people gone wrong and um and then that kind of sort of 10 years later still thinking about that yeah. really <laughs> Yeah, that's it. That's kind of what what led me into epistemology, really. I mean, the other thing, which at the time I didn't really see the relationship between the two things, but now I do have a sense of them being very closely related. I there was a there's an interesting passage in Bernard Williams's book about Descartes, where he asks why when Descartes. So at the beginning of um, the meditations, there's this very uh, swift move to where Descartes says that if he's seeking the truth, if his goal is just to get to the truth about things, then the appropriate procedure for him to pursue is to accept nothing except the absolutely indubitable, accept nothing except what's completely incapable of being doubted. Mm-hmm. And, and Williams asks a good question, why? why we, normally when we're seeking the truth about things, we don't say, I want the absolutely indubitable. <laughs> I'm not going to make a, d- a decision about what to do tomorrow until... It's impossible for me to doubt what the weather is like going to be like tomorrow. <laughs> You'd never do that. It'd be mad. So what what what's going on with Descartes for him to think that, at least for him, the obviously correct procedure to follow in seeking the truth is to seek the indubitable? 
Williams asks a kind of subsidiary question along the way, which is why is it that in wanting the truth, you should want so much as knowledge? So let's let's forget about indubitability and let's just ask the first question, why, if you want the truth about something, should you want so much as knowledge of the truth? And Williams presents a kind of argument to try to explain why you should want at least knowledge of the truth. So I got very interested in that argument. And, and actually, for me, I have to say the nudge for that came from my supervisor. It wasn't from me. I think I sort of expressed some interest in it. And I said I'd always found it a kind of puzzling and interesting argument. And he said oh, I think that's a really, really good thing to write about. People haven't really written about that. Mm -hmm. And um, so we ended up working on that together for probably about two terms, knowing me. So I'm, I'm very slow philosophically it takes me a long time to work out what I think and why and so but it paid off I mean good stuff came out of all of that work so so I, I was thinking about this argument of Williams's why is it that in wanting the truth you want to know and that question and I was also thinking about issues to do with the value of knowledge why do we value knowledge more than true belief and I guess you can kind of feel those connections there and my PhD thesis basically consisted in working out those connections I think so in, in what sense do you think that knowledge is more valuable than true belief if I was writing this as like a sun headline, mm -hmm. yeah, my my view would be Barney doesn't think knowledge is more valuable than true belief. Okay, I mean that. I mean, I do I do think it's more valuable in perhaps in certain limited respects, but I don't think it's more valuable than true belief in a, in, a, in any kind of significant way in in, mm -hmm. in the kind of way that would be required to answer the the Mino problem um, of why knowledge is more valuable than true belief because. People tend to assume there's something kind of fundamentally better about knowing, and we need to identify that in order to answer the Mino problem. And I, and I just think that's a mistake. Um, so, so let me say a bit about why I think it's a mistake, just, just so what I'm saying makes a bit more sense. So the thing I noticed when I was reading about the Mino problem is that people formulate the problem in a variety of ways which aren't equivalent. And that is always a massive danger sign, I think, when you're doing philosophy because um, if you don't have a clear sense of what the problem is that you're addressing, well, God help you when you're trying to answer it, because it, it, there's, there's just, there's going to be so much mess and people talking past each other. Okay, so in what way were people not formulating the problem clearly? So sometimes you would see the problem, the Mino problem, clearly formulated as a question about value. So people would say, why is knowledge more valuable than true belief? And that's, that's fine. I don't think that's a bad question. You can ask it if you like. But you'd also see the question formulated in ways like this. Why do we seek knowledge and not just true belief? Why do we prefer knowledge to true belief? Why do we desire knowledge and not just true belief? So people would, were also formulating it in, in the way I, I came to put it subsequently. As, uh, uh, so they were also formulating the Mino problem as a question about inquiry. Why is it that inquirers seek knowledge and not just true belief? Now, of course, there's a fairly obvious reason why they felt like that was a safe way of formulating the problem, because a natural answer to the question, why do inquirers seek knowledge and not just true belief, is knowledge is more valuable than true belief. And then if you accept that assumption, the question of why knowledge, why inquirers seek knowledge and not just true belief rapidly becomes the question, well, why is knowledge more valuable than true belief? Because that's the reason why. It seemed to me that this assumption that inquirers seek knowledge and not just true belief because knowledge is more valuable than true belief. I mean, that's a, mm. that's not an obvious, that's not obviously true. There are, there, there might be ways of, of challenging that assumption. And I suppose a further thought was given that as far as I know, nobody has come up with a satisfactory solution to the Mino problem, despite there having been many years work on it. It seemed to me worth considering, well, is it possible here that we have a philosophical problem that is just based on a false assumption. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I have a paper on this, which I'll, I'll, I'll plug. Why not? <laughs> yeah. uh, in, it's, in, it's in the journal Philosophy and it's just called Inquiry and the Value of Knowledge, where I discuss the relationship between questions about inquiry, uh, in particular the quest, questions, why do inquirers desire knowledge or seek knowledge and not just true belief, and questions about the value of knowledge. And I suggest that really the fundamental questions here that need to be answered are questions about why inquirers seek and desire knowledge. And then the questions about value only really arise because of false assumptions, well, at least questionable assumptions. I think false assumptions that are made about how we're to explain why inquirers seek knowledge and not just true belief. Uh, in other words, the assumption is that an answer to that question has to go by way of the idea that knowledge is more valuable than true belief. So you do agree that inquirers seek knowledge but not true belief? Absolutely. I mean, it, right. it, weirdly as well, that, that's an assumption that lots of epistemologists have questioned. Yeah. But I, I think that's an utterly commonsensical starting point for thinking about this. So, I mean, just to give some very sort of simple considerations, I mean, if um, you're unsure what the time is, mm. you would naturally express yourself by saying, well, I want to know what the time is. It would be very weird to say walk up to them and go, do you, do you have a true belief about what the time is? Right? Yeah. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds really odd. And I mean, more, more generally, we, we would naturally describe the aim of inquiry as being to find out or discover or work out the solution to a problem or answer to a question. But wouldn't like, if I asked that question, what time is it? Wouldn't a true belief satisfy my desire for knowledge? Because I, I'd get everything that I wanted from that. Okay, so let, let's, let's be careful here. So mm -hmm. uh, if what you want is knowledge you wouldn't sure puzzles are likely to arise when you think well hang on though why do i want that because surely as you're pointing out wouldn't a true belief about the time be just as good mm -hmm. but i suppose i'd never actually ask that i'd never say do you know what the time is failing that do you have a true <laughs> belief what the time is yeah and, and and i think i think it's important to keep a sense of how odd that question is because on the face of it it's it's slightly a bit puzzling why it's so odd to ask that question yeah definitely but yeah, just sorry, just to come back to what you said. So I think I think it was just a nice mm -hmm. illustration of how you can fall into puzzlement here. You know, wouldn't a true belief about the time be just as good as knowledge? So then why do I want to know? Mm -hmm. And already we're kind of, it's very natural to think, well, to respond to that question, I have to identify some way in which knowing the time is better than having a true belief about the time. Right. And now that looks really hard. So the, the kind of basically very simple point that's been the main point in a fair amount of what I've written has just been be very wary of that assumption that in order to explain why you want to know and not just to uh, and don't just want to have a true belief we have to identify some way in which knowing is better than truly believing i think that's that's where you get into some that's that's where the kind of trick is turned and you end up with a an insoluble philosophical problem if you if you if you don't resist i mean it's it's a common thought right that often the correct response to a philosophical problem is to reject some assumption on which the problem rests so i think exactly that is what we should do with the Mino problem. Okay, so so what's the alternative direction where it becomes more soluble? So, I mean, this is, uh, and now I, sh I should be honest, I mean, this is still in the process of being fully worked out. But but the base the basic idea that I that I have, and, and I, I should acknowledge here, a lot of a lot of the influence from this comes from my for this comes from my supervisor Matt Satiria, who used to be at Warwick, is now at King's College, London. So the basic idea I think one has to appeal to is that believing something is a matter of taking yourself to know that thing. So when you believe something to be true, you take yourself to know that that thing is true. That's already a controversial claim, and but, but let, let's roll with it for a moment. So if you accept that conception of belief, then the thought is there's something unnatural or odd 
about seeking true beliefs. If one were to seek true belief, one wouldn't have arrived at a true belief until and unless one took oneself to know, because taking oneself to know is um, a condition of having a belief. So the, the more basic thought here is that from the perspective of an inquiring subject, the most fundamental distinction between having the truth and not having it is between knowing the truth and not knowing the truth. And so, though, and so although one could, in principle, aim to arrive at true beliefs, that would be an odd thing for one to do, given that uh, it's a requirement of arriving at a belief about something that one actually takes oneself to have got not just a belief but knowledge of that thing. Is that what is that what you call knowledge first epistemology? So, so exact exactly. So 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 um, so that is a claim in knowledge first epistemology. So now now maybe it's becoming apparent why I think Williamson is so important. So it all ultimately mm-hmm. comes back to egotistical considerations about me being right. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the traditional direction of explanation in epistemology has been to try to explain what knowledge is in terms of belief. I mean, there are various ways of developing that idea, but the, the most famous one is just to think knowing is a matter of having a certain kind of belief. So knowledge is belief plus truth plus justification, justified true belief. is, And then you get Gettier and all of that stuff, um, which, which uh, I teach most years. Um, so Williamson in Knowledge and Its Limits has this programme of knowledge first epistemology and the basic idea behind knowledge first epistemology is that rather than trying to explain knowledge in terms of other things that we take to be more basic than knowledge like belief, truth, justification, evidence, we instead treat knowledge as as a primitive and we try to explain other things in terms of knowledge. So when I said believing is taking oneself to know, I was making a claim in knowledge first epistemology because I was suggesting that Uh, we should try to understand what belief is in terms of knowledge. We'll take knowledge as our primitive and and use the notion of knowledge to explain what it is to believe something. Uh, And so, I I mean, so one of the, when I said it's not fully worked out, one of the Mm -hmm. things I need to work on here is articulating exactly how we should understand belief in terms of knowledge, because there are lots of different ways of developing that idea. And Williamson considers some in, in knowledge and its limits somewhat tentatively. So in, in a way, I'm perhaps even more full-bloodedly committed to that idea than Williamson is, but I'm still working on exactly how I wish to understand belief in terms of knowledge. But the deeper significance for me of that idea is that it gives a way of, um, I think, ultimately resolving the Mino problem. Right, yeah. So that'd be quite a big deal. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it would be. Uh, mm. I mean, <laughs> I, I hope so. I mean, he, he knows if anyone else will agree with it. Sure. But... I'm I'm fairly persuaded by it. I think yeah. To round off this section, then it'd be just good to to ask what is it that you think is the value of this uh, direction of inquiry? Do you mean uh, epistemology as a whole, or my little bit? So yeah, maybe the knowledge first. So so maybe your specific angle. Well, well, one thing is I think it disposes of a lot of bad stuff. So I think. Um, the project of understanding knowledge in terms of belief is is a bad one, and um, so one a, a one sign of what a bad project that is is that nobody's been able to give a satisfactory analysis of knowledge in terms of in those terms. Um, something else I've been writing about more recently is um, uh, Edward Craig's account of knowledge and knowledge in the state of nature, where he gives a, a different kind of account of knowledge, a genealog- genealogical account of knowledge in terms of of belief. I think that's also a bad idea. So so one positive thing about the 
knowledge first program is it, is it disposes of a, a certain amount of, of of bad stuff i mean i should say i don't i don't think all of the work in that area is bad and there are things to learn from it but i just i just mean it at the underlying level i don't i don't think it's the right approach mm, and sure so knowledge first epistemology is an important corrective but i think also positively knowledge first epistemology opens up a lot of interesting um possibilities um, I think there are various things that it's it's very difficult to explain unless you give knowledge a kind of primary role in theorising and try to understand other terms, other other things that are epistemologically significant, like belief, in terms of knowledge. So, so one area for me, as I've talked about, is the Mino problem. And I think ultimately, I mean, this, and if I one day write a book, one of the themes I hope would be that you know ultimately it's only through being a knowledge first theorist that you can resolve some of these traditional big problems in epistemology like the Mino problem. Another thing I want to write about but haven't got around to yet is the impossibility of believing at will. So I don't know if you've come across this. So again, this is bringing us back to Bernard Williams. He has this great paper, Deciding to Believe, where he observes um, that one can't form beliefs at will. So, so you can't just decide to believe that the number of stars is even. And then people have thought that there should be some explanation as to why you cannot believe at will in terms of the nature of belief. So, uh, I mean, to give to, just to give a contrast, I mean, you can suppose for the sake of argument that the number of stars is even and deduce consequences from that. That's something you could choose to do. But why why can't you decide to believe that the number of stars is even? What's the what's the obstacle? So the thought many philosophers have had is something about the nature of belief that will explain that. I think if you understand knowledge, sorry, I think if you understand belief in terms of knowledge, a very natural direction of explanation opens up, which is that the impossibility of believing at will is to be explained in terms of the impossibility of knowing at will. I can't know at will basically because I can't know something unless it's true. I can't know that the number of stars is even unless the number of stars is even. But I recognise, of course, that it's not in my power to determine whether or not the number of stars is odd or even. So I can't just decide to know that the number of stars is odd. Hence, if believing is just treating something as though you know it, or taking yourself to know it, I can't just decide to believe that the number of stars is even, because that would involve me taking myself to know that it was, but I recognise that I can't know that at will. So that's something I'm keen to develop as well. So, I mean, that's but coming back to the broader question, it's just to point out some of the ways in which knowledge first epistemology um, opens up um, interesting and significant directions of inquiry within epistemology and and actually philosophy of mind as well because the issue of believing at will would normally be considered an issue in philosophy of mind rather than epistemology. That's great because that's what I wanted to ask about next was how does your research in epistemology link to philosophy of mind? I suppose that's you know Mm -hmm. partially an answer but other other areas as well not not re- so i'm quite a weird philosopher of mind in a way because i think um when people think of philosophy of mind they tend to think of i guess first and foremost the mind body problem um mm-hmm. whereas my my interest in philosophy of mind has come very much vi- well i mean I, i'm interested in it anyway but kind of like my research level interest in it as it as it were where i write has come very much via questions in epistemology the bottom line is that it's because I think we have to appeal to these claims about the nature of belief to resolve questions in epistemology that ultimately I become entangled in issues in philosophy of mind um, via thinking about issues about the nature of belief which would normally be considered well they're very much on the borderline of mind and epistemology but I guess strictly speaking Mm -hmm. they're mind issues Um, 
I mean, a natural extension from thinking about belief um, is to think about other cognitive attitudes that are that that are, are related or similar to believing but different. So, I've written about the nature of guessing and what the difference is between believing and guessing. Haven't published that, but hopefully one day I will. Um, a, a question I'm very sensitive to in thinking about the nature of belief is how to capture distinctions between believing and guessing and supposing for the sake of argument and accepting for practical purposes how do how do you explain the differences between those those different kinds of cognitive attitude and actually again this leads back very quickly into knowledge first because the the core idea is that to capture that difference you have to appeal to knowledge so roughly that when you believe you take yourself to know when you guess you don't when you suppose for the sake of argument you don't take yourself to know and so on so the thought is that from the subject's perspective it's the distinction between knowing and not knowing and what they know and what they don't know that accounts for the or at least partially accounts for the difference between what they believe and what they merely suppose or guess thank you for that so we're going to move on to a third section that is explicitly about philosophy of mind okay <laughs> and so just to just to start off that section um what is philosophy of mind for you know those listeners who haven't really heard of it before okay so um so i mean philosophy of mind is the um i mean to state the obvious it's the philosophical investigation of questions about about the mind um so some of the principal problems that have interested philosophers in this area uh at least since the 17th century so i'm thinking here of descartes who's often called the father of modern philosophy and um and issues about the relationship between the mind and the body come to the fore in, De in Descartes' writings. So one of the major problems is, is just the traditional mind-body problem. Um, what, what is the mind and how is it related to the body? Is the mind just the brain? Or is it perhaps, as Descartes thought, a kind of separate immaterial thing or substance that could uh, that can exist independently of the body? So, so that's one... I suppose many people would say that's kind of the central problem in the philosophy of mind has been to try to make sense of the relationship between the mind and the body. I suppose something that people might be wondering is, well, what doesn't isn't that a question that that, that belongs to psychology? And I suppose this, the short answer to that is actually the relationship between the mind and the body is not something that you can straightforwardly establish through any kind of empirical investigation. It seems to be the sort of question that relies more on thinking about more general philosophical considerations about the nature of the mind and what it is to have a mind. Um, so it, it's not really a question that belongs to psychology primarily, although I think um, results in psychology, findings in psychology, say in neuroscience, could well be relevant to things we think mm. about the mind-body problem. So that's the kind of central question. And then there's lots of other questions as well in philosophy of mind. So some of them concern more specific types of mental state. So we've already touched on some of these. What, what's, what's a belief? What's the difference between believing and imagining? Um, sensory perception is, a, is an area of enormous and ongoing interest in philosophy of mind. What is it to see something? Are there just five senses? What's the difference between the different senses that we have? What's the difference between sight and touch? All sorts of interesting philosophical questions come up about that. And, and also, actually, under the under the remit of philosophy of mind, there would be issues about epistemology that fall. So I'm thinking here principally of the problem problems to do with our knowledge of minds. So there's interesting problems about our knowledge of other minds. How is it possible for me to know anything about the mind of another? 
Um, so that's a, a well well known problem in philosophy. I wrote my undergraduate dissertation on on that problem. Actually, what I'm more interested in nowadays are problems about self knowledge. So um, it's often thought that we have a kind of distinctive, privileged form of access to our own minds. And, uh, you know, I know my own mind better than I know yours, that your mind is in some way kind of not exactly hidden, but something I it might be thought I can only know indirectly or something like that, whereas I have a direct knowledge of my own mind. I mean, these terms direct and indirect, you should definitely be very suspicious of them. But I'm just yeah. giving a kind of sense of the sorts of things that you might be puzzled by as you start to think about philosophy of mind. So there's lots of interesting work about how how to explain the kind of privileged access that we have to our own minds um actually i mean this is just an aside but it's something i've been thinking about more recently in a broader context so um i've been reading rousseau's confessions over the summer so it's an autobiographical work autobiographical work and rousseau is very clear that he has uh, a kind of privileged access to his own character and actions and motives and he sort of famously says in one place that the biography of any person can only be written by the person themselves because they have this kind of privileged mm. knowledge of their own their own character and motives and things. It's just very interesting to think about um, issues of self-knowledge in the broader context of biography and autobiography, I think. Um, so, so people... So, I mean, I got onto this because in Truth and Truthfulness, the book of Bernard Williams is he sort of criticises Rousseau. Yeah, how do you feel about that? Do you think that we do have that uh, privileged access to our own to knowledge about ourselves? So, so I mean, I think, I think it's important here to draw distinctions between kinds of mental. Uh, I mean, using the term loosely, mm-hmm. between different kinds of mental state. So, I think when it comes to things like belief, it seems that each of us does have some kind of special way of knowing uh, what they believe. Famously, there can be you can make mistakes as well. I mean, these mm-hmm. are. You know, I mean, the, the kind of famous example here that obviously has a lot of contemporary re- relevance is, you know, most people, well, maybe not most, but many people would insist that they, they had no racist beliefs, but yet nevertheless right. in certain situations they would manifest biases against um, people of colour or, or whatever. So I think when it comes to things like beliefs, perhaps whether you're in pain, seems that's something that you have some kind of privileged awareness of. But other kinds of mental states... Or, or, or what we might think of as sort of aspects of our minds are are, are much more resistant to um, our knowledge. So, I mean, it's quite, I think it's a fairly well-known phenomenon that people can be pretty radically mistaken about what their motives are in behaving in certain ways. Mm-hmm. People can have bizarrely mistaken views about their character and what they're like, um, as a, just as a person. You know, lots of people probably think of themselves as being generous, where... where <laughs> Yeah. Their friends might be like, not that generous, <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, Kasim, Kasim Kassam in the department has written a lot about self-knowledge and um, he, uh, in his book, Self-Knowledge for Humans, talks about all of all of this stuff and the need to um, draw distinctions here. And, uh, and a sort of theme in his work is that philosophers have kind of been, have paid far too much attention to the sort of epistemologically special forms of, self, of self-knowledge. So... There's lots of writing philosophically about how you know what you believe or how you know whether you're in pain. Mm-hmm. Philosophers have written less. I mean, they've still written plenty, but less about how you know what your character is or, um, say, the kind of part of the point of his book, Self-Knowledge for Humans, is that we should focus on actually things like knowing your character because those are the sort of forms of self-knowledge which are much more significant for ordinary people, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and we should sort of not be so obsessed with sort of apparently less important questions like, well, how do you know you're in pain right now? Yeah, because right? people generally seem to know. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't actually entirely go along with, with Kasim's frustration here with the state of the contemporary literature on self-knowledge. But, but, but yes, so, so coming back to your original question, so do I think we have privileged access? I think, yes, we certainly do to a, to a range of mental states that includes our sensations and our beliefs. Um, but, but one should be careful about extending beyond that range. It might be that in some cases, other people are actually in a better position to know what you're like than you are. Say with respect to whether you're a generous person. I'd probably trust what someone else said who knew the person well over what the person said themselves. Yeah, no, that's very true. <laughs> Philosophy of mind seems to generate popular and extremely counterintuitive views, especially around like the mind-body problem. Uh, so examples are illusionism, in which our phenomenal consciousness, so what we directly experience, is an illusion, um, and panpsychism, in which in some qualified way, all matter is conscious. Uh, so why do you think that philosophy of mind leads to such counterintuitive views? I, I can only give a kind of what my guess would be. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I, and really, I mean, it's going to sound kind of a bit smug and annoying, but if I was going to investigate these areas, these yeah. would be my kind of working assumptions. So the first thing to remember is that most philosophical arguments are bad. So <laughs> part of what will explain, but that's just, I mean, you know, I reason badly all the time. Like, there's loads of bad arguments in my work. It just, just happens. It's very hard not to reason badly sometimes. Although I do have some colleagues who I feel like they never reason badly. But anyway, I, I still do. But anyway, most, most philosophical arguments are bad. So one explanation of what's going on is just people have been taken in by some bad arguments. Um, and I, I think that might explain a certain amount of it. A second, I think, deeper assumption would, or, or thought I would have is I suspect that perhaps some of these problems are not really that well understood, which, which sounds sort of weird. Haven't we known about the mind-body problem since Descartes? So how can you say that, that the problem isn't well understood? Well, I, I mean, actually, it's, it's sort of a, a confusing to think of the mind-body problem as though it's just a single thing that has been completely unchanged for a, a few hundred years. So, so, so on a general level, there are issues about the relationship between the mind and the body, but those are really just headings under which a variety of different issues arise, depending on the more specific assumptions one makes about the nature of matter, the nature of the, of the mind. Um, issues about the nature of causation are often important in the context of the mind-body problem because um, it's thought that the mind and the body causally interact, that, you know, wanting something can cause me to act in ways, move my body in ways that lead to me getting that thing. So I think what probably what one has to do, or a, a great deal of the work here will consist in just unpacking what all of these more specific assumptions are that underlie formulations mm -hmm. of the mind-body problem. There's been interesting work in this area particularly in the last 20 or 30, well, I'm thinking of Helen Stewart's books, and that's published in the late 90s, The Ontology of Mind, where, where Stewart points out that when philosophers theorise about the mind-body problem, they use a variety of different terms. They talk about mental states, mental processes, mental events. And so she says, you know, what, what's the difference between an event and a process and a state? Uh, 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 and I think shows him persuasive, quite persuasively that thinking about those sorts of background ontological issues about the distinctions between states, events and processes can, in various ways, um, enlighten us in philosophy of mind. 
so so that that so those those would be my sort of two mm. two thoughts really so i think there's probably quite a few bad arguments kicking around and i think there's probably a fair amount of not really being clear enough about what the problems are and and that might in part involve using certain notions like state and event and property in fairly uncritical ways which can generate confusion so that that's sort of my my take so so i mean i think maybe it's helpful here to contrast the answer i'm not giving Mm-hmm. So an answer that I might have been tempted to give, having read Brian McGee, is because the mind is this deeply mysterious thing, and whatever the truth about it is, it has to be strange. So we need to try out all these different right, solutions. Right. So this is a change in my temperament. Now I'm much more kind of cynical about <laughs> <laughs> about about the problems and about the arguments. And but I, but I, I think that's real. I think that's real progress. Actually, for me, it has been to get to that stage where I have a better understanding of how a lot of these apparently insoluble problems that I found fascinating as a teenager, I now look back on and think that's not really a problem at all. You were just a bit confused about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's my two pennies on, on, on what's going on in philosophy of mind, but, but <laughs> I hope I haven't insulted anyone. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that was a, uh, yeah, a kind way of approaching the issue, definitely. Great, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Barney. Uh, that's been a really interesting conversation. Hey, thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Common Room Philosophy. If you enjoyed this episode, then why not follow us on Twitter at Room Philosophy, where you'll be able to ask questions that could be featured in future interviews.